So um, <clears throat> next week I'll be uh, talking about the kind of ideas behind the process of inviting people into anything that you participate in as a follower of Jesus. And uh, we'll be looking at that um, in particular next week. And then, of course, on Christmas Eve at 5.30, when we all gather for carols by candlelight, that will be a time when we look at what it means for God to be among us, Emmanuel, God with us. What does that mean and how does that good news, that gospel, transform the world and how can it transform our lives and uh, of course, that's a great opportunity for you to bring your friends and your family and your neighbours. But for this week, we're going to uh, continue a little bit longer in Luke chapter 9. Next week, we'll be actually getting into Luke chapter 10 and um, beginning to think through what it means to have these people that God has prepared in our lives for us to invite into his kingdom. But as we complete the the narrative of Luke chapter nine, where we're right at the point now where Jesus is inviting his inner core of friends and followers into the most intimate parts of his life. And of course, the most intimate parts of his life are the parts of his life that he shares with his heavenly father. And so we're going to move into that today. But here's... Here's the question that we, that we ask ourselves. I'm just gonna go and get my bottle of water whilst we're talking about this. Um, here's the question that we ask ourselves as we move into this subject. Remember last week, we, um, we saw Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish and we saw Jesus take, bless, break and give and we recognised that this multiplication that Jesus was able to create, perform in the feeding of the 5,000 is enormously important for the way that we understand the way that Jesus wants to multiply his life from our life into the lives of other people. Because we noted that on every occasion, the one miracle that is mentioned in all of the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is always recorded as taking blessing, breaking and giving. And that this fourfold action is exactly the same fourfold action that is, that is recorded that Jesus enacts when he institutes the Lord's Supper, when he gathers with his disciples in the upper room and takes the bread and blesses the bread and breaks the bread and gives the bread to his disciples. So there's something deeply significant, deeply profound about this. And so we looked at that pattern last week and, and some of you have contacted me to say how encouraged you are that you note that the life that we've lived together here at Apex seems to articulate this particular pattern. And some of you have got back to me and said that individually you've noted that this pattern is the pattern of your life and you feel encouraged because up until now you had no explanation really for the breaking part. Because of course, 
when we look at that, the bit that we're least excited about is the third bit. I mean, if we're honest, I mean, there's no masochism in the kingdom, is there? I mean, it's not like we're really kind of, oh, wow, let's get to the breaking bit. Of course not. And so this week, we're going to look at this particular part, this particular component, not as an occasional, often painful experience, but as something that begins to be woven into our life. Not as something that we dread, but as something that we embrace and enjoy. Not as something that comes with searing pain, but something that is more articulated by way of withdrawal from the busyness of life. Articulated more in solitude and silence. Articulated more in terms of a retreat from the cut and thrust of the world where we find ourselves in the hands of tender mercy, revealing to us the places of our brokenness, the places of our need, and in those places, discovering the grace that God has for us. Not something to be dreaded, not something to be run away from, but something to be daily embraced. And which, if we embrace it in such a way, is not something that is marked by pain, but is something that is marked by power. Three times I asked the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh, said Paul. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So this week, we're going to dive in there and uh, we're going to do it by again looking at the story of Jesus and how it was that he is the model to the first disciples and the model to us today. And we're going to do it as a bit of a midrash. That's a Jewish word, not for an allergy uh, that causes some kind of um, redness around the belly region. Um, a midrash, which is, we're all gonna do it together. There's lots of different ways of preaching. You've seen me uh, kind of attempt and try different styles of preaching and presentation. This week, a midrash style of presentation and preaching means that we have to be much more engaged and I'm gonna actually ask you questions that are not simply rhetorical, but are actually expecting you to give me a response. And so it's more like a seminar uh, than it would be normally a sermon. But before we get there, I'm going to just offer a few expository thoughts on the section in Luke chapter nine that deals with the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And that means that we need to go to Luke chapter nine and verse 28. It begins as a segue from Jesus speaking about the need for us to take up our cross and follow him. 
About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. So here we have Jesus at the end of a phase of ministry. The beginning of the gospel reveals to us that Jesus began his ministry with his baptism and with his retreat into the wilderness. We're gonna look at that in a moment when we do the Midrash section of our, of our time together today. And most of the gospels reveal to us that the journey from the baptism to the transfiguration is like a single journey up to the zenith, to the apex, if I might use such a word here, to the apex of a mountain. It's as though the transfiguration is the balance point of the entire narrative of Jesus. And from the transfiguration, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem and goes into the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf, carries our sin and shame, is crucified in our place and rises from the dead victorious. That, that story, that, that pattern, especially in, in Mark's gospel, is very clear that the transfiguration is the fulcrum on which everything is balanced. It's as though the people who were there knew that this was a definitive revelation of who Jesus was and what it was that he'd come to do. And so at the end of this first phase of ministry from the baptism, all the way through his time particularly expressed in Galilee, where he's preaching the kingdom and healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead. At the end of that time, Jesus sends out his disciples, as it were, to kind of do a mopping up operation. They come back to Capernaum and he takes them on retreat with him. And like in every example of retreat, Jesus reveals deep truths in the midst of that retreat. Of course, one of the great truths is the revelation that is that of Peter's, that Jesus is not only the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. 
And on the, on, the, on the back of that revelation that he's the son of God, he takes Peter and he takes John and James and he invites them with him into his personal retreat. We're told in Luke chapter five, we looked at it some weeks ago. Luke chapter five, we're told that, that although Jesus was acclaimed, although Jesus was the great celebrity of his day, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And one of those times when he's withdrawing from the busyness, when, he is, when he's going to a lonely place, away from the busyness, one of those times when he goes to pray, he invites the inner core of his followers to join him. Now, was it that on every occasion that Jesus withdrew to pray that he had similar experiences as those that we see recorded here in this story of the transfiguration? No one knows. But we know on this occasion, in this particular moment, when Jesus takes Peter, James and John with him, that they are invited into a revelation beyond anything that anyone in the world had ever seen. So significant was this revelation that when Peter was preparing for his own death in Rome and writing his second letter to the Christians scattered throughout the world, the one event from the life of Jesus that he records and remembers and reminds the followers of Jesus of is the transfiguration. We heard the voice in the majestic glory speak to us on the sacred mountain, says Peter. Don't you find that interesting? Don't you find that fascinating that of all of the things that Peter could have recorded, it was this event, the transfiguration, that so marked his soul that when he knew that he was about to die, this was something that came to the very surface of his memories. Fascinating, isn't it? And isn't it interesting that many, many years later, perhaps a whole generation later, at the end of the first century, when John, the other one survivor, if you like, of those first three, James is killed by Herod in a persecution in Jerusalem very soon after the beginning of the church and Peter and John are the, are the ones who survive longest. Peter goes on to maybe AD 69. John goes on to perhaps the end of the century, maybe the very beginning of the next century. And here he is, an old man. And he's thinking through how to begin his gospel. And he's asking the Holy Spirit to show him how he can engage his readers and of course, the father speaking from the cloud says this, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to what he says. Is that what, he, is that what the father said? Listen to what he says. Listen to his teaching. Listen to 
to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. And John, as he reflects on these things, says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Listen to him, he is the word. This was an amazingly significant moment in the lives of these disciples. They see Jesus transfigured before before them. As Jesus is praying, it's as though as it was right at the very beginning of the ministry in, in the baptism, it's as though the heavens are opened and the true nature of Jesus is revealed. Jesus, as he is in heaven, is revealed here on earth. And he's transfigured before. And it's as though the portal into heaven is so wide and, and, so, and so available that the people of heaven are able to step, as it were, down the staircase of God's presence into this moment. And Moses and Elijah come and speak with Jesus. Moses and Elijah are the law and the prophets. Of course, they're, they're real people. They still exist in heaven to this day. Of course. But they symbolize something enormously important to the Jewish mind. The whole of the Bible up until that point is framed by these two words, the law, personified in Moses, the prophets, personified in Elijah. And so Elijah and Moses come and speak with Jesus and they speak about and here's the interesting thing. In the original language that this, that this book is written in, the word therefore departure is the word exodus. Moses and Elijah come and speak to Jesus about his exodus that he will fulfill in Jerusalem. Obviously, it's going to involve the Passover. Obviously, it's going to involve the angel of death. Obviously, it's going to be that a new lamb is going to be offered as a sacrifice to protect those that are under the blood of that lamb from the touch of death. What could this be? What could this mean? And as they step back into the realm beyond. Peter doesn't know what to say. He's thinking, goodness, this, this feels like better than the Old Testament. And basically what they did in the Old Testament was they kind of built a temple and the first one was portable. So maybe we should have three and maybe I should stop talking now and I've got no idea what I'm saying 
I mean, you know, poor guy. He just thought the best thing to do was to kind of start processing and the only way he knew how to process was out loud. I know there's nobody uh, here today that's like that. But here he is, he's just processing out loud and, you know, he, he doesn't know what he's saying. And then a cloud covers them. The word there in the text that says overshadowed is the same word used on every occasion in the first three gospels that speak about the transfiguration of Jesus. And it's the same word that I think it says in the description of the work of the Holy Spirit by Gabriel when he comes to Mary. He says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The cloud comes and overshadows them. The, the cloud comes and envelops them. This, this picture again is a picture that would come directly to the heart of these Jewish followers of Jesus, Peter, James and John. They know that what is being symbolised is the very presence of God. His Spirit is here with them, all around them. They're being taken up into the Spirit. And in the midst of the cloud, where they find themselves fearful, the voice of the Father speaks. Now in the baptism, of course, the voice is very much for Jesus, his son. On this occasion, the Father saying precisely the same things is being spoken for the benefit of the disciples. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Now, as I've been intimating and indicating as I've been going through this just very brief expository thoughts section of our morning's presentation, this passage, this event, this pericope, as the scholars put it, bears great similarity to the beginning of the gospel. And so we're going to um, try to put both passages up this morning. We're going to look at um, the, the, the baptism narrative and then we've got a kind of a, a long uh, genealogy that we're not going to attend to this morning. And then, um, and then we're going to look at um, the, the, the wilderness narrative and we're going to try to we're going to try to do something this morning that's, that's going to help us understand something that's really important to us. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you want to live in the process of grace that leads to the multiplication of the life of Jesus in you into the lives of other people, then of course we have to follow the way of Jesus. And taking the way of Jesus means that we learn the elements of that way and embrace each of them. And as we embrace each of them, we discover something that is important about each of those elements. And so this morning, my hope and prayer is that you go from this place with a renewed passion for meeting with God in prayer and Bible study 
in retreat, in withdrawal from the busyness of life. And you'll realise that there is such benefit in that discipline that it will draw you there again and again. I know what it's like to be a follower of Jesus, knowing that it's important to pray and read your Bible. And I I know what it's like for it to become a series of of kind of menial spiritual tasks where you're praying for the various different people that you're praying for and trying to get enough information about God that you think is gonna be helpful for your life. I know what that's like. But how can it go to a new level? How can we rise above the level of mediocrity in our personal spiritual life so that our times with God have a renewed significance and a deeper meaning? And how can they lead to a more impactful life for the kingdom as we share the gospel with others? That's what it is that I'm praying God will do this morning. So let's have a look at these these passages together. Um, I'm going to read from uh, Luke chapter 3 and um, we'll see how that matches with some of the things in the transfiguration. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Let's read from the Transfiguration, chapter nine, verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Let's just look at this to begin with. Give me, some, give me some words that express, first of all, what it is that Jesus is doing. What's Jesus doing in his baptism that is similar to what he's doing there on the mountain or even identical to what it is that he's doing on the mountain of transfiguration? What about the elves on the shelf? Anybody up there? <laughs> Say again. Praying. Do you agree on this side, elves? Yeah. All right. Praying. Everybody down here? Yeah. Okay. Let's do that one. Thinking what it is that Jesus is receiving what it is that Jesus is hearing, what it is that Jesus is engaging with in the baptism and the transfiguration. Any suggestions? Yeah, right there. Direct communication with the Father, which is kind of partly this, isn't it? Communication, you give me all the long words to write, okay. Communication, yeah. So what does that mean then? That Jesus is saying something and what? Say 
Somebody over here who answered over here. Louder. He's responding. And what's he responding to? Something's being revealed. Who said that? Uh, right way at the very back there. Well done. And, um, and if we were to use a kind of a, a standard biblical word to describe God revealing something, it's his revelation, it's his, his word. So we could put revelation, word, okay, good. It's great, if that's for me, tell him I'm busy. So, so we've got Jesus going to pray and Jesus going to listen. Is that fair? Is that, is, that, is that a good way of connecting the baptism and the transfiguration? Here is the Old Testament. Of course, there's no Old Testament in the time of Jesus. It's the Bible. There isn't a New Testament yet. So the Bible is personified in Moses and Elijah. The, wor- the Word is personified in the law and the prophets. And they've come to talk to him. And so Jesus is there to to pray and to listen. And of course, he's listening to the word of God. Now, in our prayer times, in our personal spiritual life, obviously, prayer and the word of God are absolutely essential. How many people agree with that? Great, about 70%. That's fantastic, that's a great start. All right, let's, um, let's, let's read it again and see, let's see if there's anything else that's, uh, that's important about this. So uh, I'll read from the Transfiguration from verse 32 onwards. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. As a voice, and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Now, let's just read again the words of the baptism. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I'm very pleased. And then in chapter four, verse one, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What is the most important revelation that Jesus receives 
in his baptism and in his transfiguration. Now, okay, let me just say this. There's all kinds of mystery and difficulty that is associated with our understanding of what it means for the Son of God to be incarnate among us. But we have to assume that God the Father is saying these things for a reason. It's not just for vanity's sake, it's for purpose. And so whether it's being revealed specifically to Jesus, and I'm certain that Jesus already knew these things because it's quite clear in Scripture that even as a, as a young boy, he knew that his father was, was God in heaven. But what is it that is being revealed about Jesus in the baptism, in the question of the devil, and in the words of the Father on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration? What's, what's the key thing? Okay, well, over there I heard something up there. Say that again. Just put your hand up, the person who's just speaking there. Gotcha. Say that again. Confirms his identity. Okay. Everybody get that? It confirms his identity. What is the identity of Jesus? He is the Son of God. Now, along with identity, this is slightly more complex, and so maybe I won't ask anybody in the gallery. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> Alongside identity, when the Father says, I have chosen him, listen to him, in fact, in the entire statement, both at the baptism and at the transfiguration, there is something that he's saying about Jesus carrying this identity that's important for everyone to understand. What is it? Say that again. He's a fulfillment of prophecy. Authority. Hang on, just, let's say that again, Joan. Authority, and then what do we hear over here? We're not alone, absolutely we're not alone. I think we've said this before on a Sunday morning, but identity and authority obviously are really, really important, aren't they? And they're deeply connected. Does everybody get that? If you have the identity which gives you a particular understanding of who you are and the rest of the world a clear understanding of who you are, you have an authority to fulfill that identity. Correct? So authority, listen to him, I have chosen. This idea of identity is deeply connected with authority. Okay, let's keep going. Let's, uh, 
let's read a little bit further into the temptation of Jesus. We're in uh, Luke chapter four, verse three. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Now just try to remember what it was that we read in the Transfiguration. And for those of you who are perhaps more mature Bible scholars, think what's gonna happen next after the transfiguration. But here we are in the wilderness for a moment. What is Jesus doing when he's tempted? What does he do? He quotes the scriptures, he relies on the word. So this is kind of a, this is a really, really important part, isn't it, of being alone with the Father, yeah? It's really important because when Jesus is alone with the Father, it doesn't mean that he's away from the devil. Ha-ha, wait a minute. Good point, Aiden. He's not away from the devil just because he's away from the rest of the world. And so he needs to be able to deal with whatever assaults, temptations, and difficulties come his way. Do you think the devil's excited about you spending time with the Father by yourself? No, I didn't hear a yes anywhere in the building. He's not excited about it at all, is he? So obviously he's gonna undermine your attempts to be away with him. Of course, it's gonna be more difficult to get up in the morning that day that you decide to get up early. Of course, you're gonna have all kinds of things in your mind instead of reading the Bible and praying. Of course, the children are gonna wake you up in the middle of the night. Of co- Not that they're instruments of the devil, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Although, I mean, but, but anyway, um, we can talk about that another day. But, but you see what I mean. Of course, it's gonna be difficult. But what's happening as Jesus gets away with his father is that his identity is confirmed. And because his identity is confirmed, his authority is established. What does Jesus come out of a time alone in the desert with? Put a hand up at the back there who just said that. There's a lady's voice. I know somebody said it back of the... Help on the shelf. There you are. <laughs> Power. 
And you've, you've almost got a red shirt on as well. You just need a hat and it really would be, wouldn't it? So power. Power. I'll find the black pen. Power. Now, this is something for you Bible scholars or for anybody who's got their Bible open. <laughs> when Jesus comes down the Mount of Transfiguration, what's the next thing that happens? Say again. He's tempted. He comes down the mountain of transfiguration. He's with Peter, James, and John, and he's confronted with what scene? Say again. A demon-possessed boy who is manifesting all of the signs and symptoms of some terrible kind of epileptic issue in his life. And Jesus is what? He's, is he excited about the fact that the, the disciples couldn't cast out this demon? What does he say to the, to the, to the disciples? He says what? He rebukes them, which is a great religious word, isn't it? I love rebuked them. It means that he was a bit cross with them, I think. He says, um, he says things like adulterous generation. I mean, you know, it's really kind of heavy stuff. It's, you know, you wouldn't normally say things like that to people that you like. And he says, bring the boy to me. He casts out the demon, just gone immediately. Now in other gospels, because of the emphasis of those gospel writers, they, they want to kind of get under the surface of this situation a little bit more. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, why couldn't we drive out the demon? And Jesus says, what? It requires prayer and fasting. So where are you gonna do the prayer and the fasting? Where's Jesus done the prayer and the fasting? I mean, was there a, 7-Eleven on the Mount of Transfiguration? Was it McDonald's up there? They call them McDaniels in, uh, no, no, MacDavid, sorry, not McDaniels. MacDavid's in, in Israel today. They do, really, they do really call it MacDavid's. I'm, I'm not just joking. But there's not a MacDavid's, no, no, not McDonald's, there's, not a, there's nothing up there, is there? Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he's in the midst of the wilderness and he's in the midst of, of battle. So, here's my little question to you this morning. When you look at how Jesus conducts himself in his quiet times with the Father, how close does this look like your quiet times? Prayer and the Word and the Word leading to prayer. Is there a sense of identity leading to authority and authority 
confirming your identity? Is there a sense that now that you know your identity and identity leads to authority, authority means that you know that you have power to win the battles of life and in the midst of the battle, you know that you have all of the resources of heaven at your disposal to win. Is that the outcome of your quiet times in the morning or in the evening or at lunchtime? And if it isn't, just be honest right now. Which bit is the bit that you need to think about? I'll tell you the bit that I often need to think. This is me, I'm, I, this may not be you. This is the thing for me. Because you know, I, I, I became a Christian reading the Bible at the age of 16. It's never been an issue for me to read the Bible every day. Sally and I read the Bible every day. Our, our basic kind of pattern is the dog wakes us up He comes and licks my foot or hand or whatever it is that is extending from the duvet that morning. He wakes us up, he says, it's time to get up, I wanna get fed. Then one of us, depending on who's led by the Lord, uh, (laughs) then one of us gets up and makes a cup of tea because obviously, even though we've become Americans, we still have the reality that we were born in England. And so the first drink of the day is a cup of tea. So we have a cup of tea and the person who makes the cup of tea feeds the dog and then you come back upstairs and we put a blanket on the bed and the dog comes up on the bed and then we read the Bible together and pray in bed. I mean, why not? Perfect. So that's the start of every day and it's been the start of my day personally and and Sally's pattern of life since we were teenagers. And so reading our Bibles and and praying every day is not a big deal for us anymore. It can be for folks who are not familiar with that as a discipline. It's not a big deal for us anymore. But it's a funny thing. This whole idea of listening to the Father's voice saying, you are my child whom I love. I've chosen and appointed you and I want other people to listen to you. That thing may not be a daily experience, honestly. But you see, out of that comes authority and out of that comes power and out of that comes victory in the battle. I would say that if I were to put this In big terms, I would say, I would say that drawing away with Jesus and coming to speak to the Father in intimacy that leads to a deep sense of identity changes my impact every day.
every day. And I think intimacy leading to a reaffirmation of identity is really the key to increased impact. But that's me, I don't know, is that, is that you? Some people are kind of smiling knowingly at me. So where are you going to stir yourself? Where are you going to reconfirm your commitment today to a daily walk with God? To a daily withdrawal from the business? To a daily drawing aside into the hands of the Father, knowing that there in his hands, his gracious mercy will reveal to you the brokenness without you having to go through that awful experience of breaking. Those days may come, but we'll be able to welcome them much more as a friend if they become a familiar part of our daily walk with him. Which, which peace is the peace for you today? I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us. Here's my encouragement to you. My guess, my guess is that for the majority of us, a fresh call to an intimate relationship with the Father that leads to a deepening sense of our identity is what you need and what I need. And so this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing this final song together. It's quite brief, so we're gonna sing it a couple of times. And we're gonna sing it in a way that helps us make that step that God is speaking to us about this morning. And in making that step, my encouragement to you is this. Make that step, not just with your head, not just with your heart, but with your body. God created a body so that you could speak to him of your intentions and of your, of your decisions and of your heartfelt desires. And if your heartfelt desire this morning is to increase your intimacy with the Father, to grow in your understanding of your identity as a child of God, and therefore, on that basis, make a greater impact because he's working through you more effectively. Then come and join the others who no doubt will come to the front this morning to sing and to worship in this final phase of our time together. Just come and worship together. Let's stand.